0: It's certainly good to be here today. It's good to see everybody. Today we're going to talk about uh, what we've been talking about in our series of lessons on what it means to be part of the Lord's Church, or more importantly, how to identify the Lord's church. You, Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, and I say to you that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And we talked in previous lessons uh, what that means when he said that thou art Peter, and upon this rock. He was saying upon Peter's confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the first before, that that is what the church will be built on. Jesus has all authority over the church, And over its members, Jesus Christ dictates what the church is to be called, as we've talked about. Jesus Christ has the authority to dictate when the church gathers and what takes place when it does gather. Ephesians 5 verse 23 uh, teaches, for as the husband is the head of the wife, so also is Christ head over the church and he is the savior of the body. Now the world today is full of religious groups. Different religious bodies that go by different names and different practices, and that is a ploy of Satan, and it's a very smart one at that. If we had a picture of a dollar, and I said, find the dollar, well, it's easy to do. There's one dollar. That's the real thing. But then if we threw in a bunch of counterfeits, all of a sudden it makes it increasingly more difficult. And so when we look at our religious world, this world that we live in today, that is what Satan has done. Well, here in the U.S., our evangelistic problem or, or uh, uh, our, the, the problems we deal with are different than a lot of other countries. We're not out here just preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ or preaching the good news. We're oftentimes tasked with having to undo all the lies that Satan has put into people's minds. Uh, even though they may be from the Bible, even though they may be from well-respected people, as we'll talk about in a little bit, it is not the truth that Jesus died to bring us. We have to teach people today how to identify the Lord's church. So far, we've confirmed the following. We've talked about the Lord's church can be identified by its name, its birthplace, Its birthday, its foundation, its builder, and its creed. And today we will find that the Lord's church can also be identified by its teaching on salvation. So Brother Tim read for us from Acts chapter 2, which talk talk, you know, the day of Pentecost. And entire lessons could be devoted to just this chapter in Acts chapter 2. A lot's going on here in this chapter. The day of Pentecost was perhaps the most influential day to ever mark. The church. It was the beginning of the church. It's the very first. Uh, the very first time that we see the, 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 the gospel being taught under the new covenant. It's the first time that we see people uh, uh, being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins. It was, it was the beginning of, of the church. It was everything that, that, that had been prophesied for years to, uh, for years before, centuries before. It was what Jesus died for, and it's now here. All these things that Jesus had been here teaching about and doing and performing miracles to demonstrate his power, and his authority to do this, it was being done. Now, the people that were gathered here, as the, as the texts say, were primarily Jews. And these were uh, a people who Peter and the apostles recognized needed the salvation that Jesus Christ died to bring us. Now, these Jews that were gathered here today thought Jesus Christ and his teachings were heresy. They thought Jesus was a heretic. These were people who were among those who were shouting out to crucify. Jesus Christ. These Jews needed salvation. And so these men, when Peter and the apostles were preaching to them, they came to a point where they recognized something and they asked a question. And in, a, in, a, in a form, you might look at this question. It's not word for word here, but it's what must I do to be saved? These men asked Peter, men and brethren, what shall we do? Or what must I do to be saved? This is the same question, the same basic question that the Philippian jailer asked. This is the same basic question that we see every con- in every conversion experience taking place through the book of Acts. Somebody was asking this question because they recognized something. Let's think about this simple phrase, what must I do to be saved? Now, when we think of that word, what, it points out that there's something lacking. What do I need? What do I, what do I have to do? What is lacking? And when you hear the word must, or in some translations, shall, it starts to take the meaning from kind of like a suggestion to a requirement. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. It's not a matter of opinion, it's a command. The word must in the conversion accounts binds the absolute necessity of the requirement given. The word I signifies that it's not just what God, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit must do, but also what I must do. Now, we all know and understand that, that, that salvation is a gift and it's something that Jesus died for. God has obviously a major part in our salvation experience. God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, together have perfectly fulfilled the plan that was set into motion. But when we read the word I, it signifies, it points out that there is individual responsibility as well. And then we see that word do. It's not what you think. It's not what you feel or what you believe. The word do implies an action on the part of the one being saved. Salvation's not a matter of passiveness, but it's a matter of activity. It's an act of obedience, as one preacher had said. God saves. We understand that God saves, but man also has a part into it by obeying the gospel, which is God's power to save, Paul says in Romans 1, verse 16. When we take the word do, out of Christianity, we start to turn it into something that Jesus didn't die for or another form of religion. You never read of an inspired apostle telling a sinner that there's nothing he has to do to become a Christian. In fact, James even says in James 2 verse 26 that faith without works is dead. It's useless. It's pointless. We have to be active in it. We must act upon that faith leading us to obedience. But then he said, then the question is to be saved. This phrase denotes the purpose of complying with the conditions given. This point to be saved recognizes what the person asking the question wants and what we must and it also suggests that the saving is done by another. So let's think about that question. What must I do to be saved? The people who asked this question in the New Testament recognized that they needed something that they didn't currently have. What about you? Are you sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that if Jesus came back right now, that you'd be saved? I'll tell you this based on Scripture, based on what we've talked about in previous lessons. If you're a member of a church that is not the church Jesus died for, you're likely not saved. If if you have put your faith in a man-made organization, you're likely not saved. If you've put your faith in an institution that did not start on the day of Pentecost, you're likely not saved. If you've put your faith and your obedience into an institution that uses a creed or confessions of faith that's simply not the Bible, you're probably not saved. That's the lies that Satan's brought us today. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 15 through 23, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Not everyone who says to be Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What do we learn from this? Well, we learned that there are false prophets that come to visit the church in sheep's clothing. Who are the false prophets? Well, these are the people who look like well-respected, loved, powerful uh, leaders in the church. You know, many people would, would call people like Joel Osteen or Benny Hinn false prophets, and I believe they are. But it's also people that we look up to and that we respect. And those are the people that Satan will use to bring those destructive heresies into the church. These are the people that will secretly deceive you and influence you with the same false doctrine that they're teaching others. But look at what he says right here. Jesus says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. Now this is Jesus Christ talking here. These people here that he's talking to, where he says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, these are people today who go to church every time the doors are open. These are people who are outrageously generous. These are people who are hospitable. These are people who do good deeds and help other people. These are people who take care of the poor and the needy. But these people are lost because they don't recognize or they are blinded by Satan's ploys. These are people who said, have we not prophesied in your name or done many wonderful things in your name? Those are good-hearted people. But they're lost because they didn't recognize that Jesus had one church. They're lost because they didn't recognize that Jesus, in His authority given to Him by God, set the, the terms for admission. Or the apostles that given the authority by Jesus set the terms of admission. These are people that didn't recognize that Jesus has given commands in how we are to come together, what takes place when we come together. And these people were the people coming together to entertain themselves or to feel good or do what they thought would be beneficial to the people. Many people are guilty of that today. Are you? We have to ask ourselves that question. We have to ask ourselves the question, have we placed our faith into an institution that is not Jesus' church? Have we placed our faith into an institution that was built by the hands of man and not the hands of our Lord? What must I do to be saved? What must you do to be saved? There isn't a single better way to answer that question than to look at the scriptures and see what it says. Four times in scripture, this question is is asked pretty specifically. Let's look at those. Mark chapter 10 is our first one. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? That's what I'm talking about. What must I do basically? And it's in that form. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. "'You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, "'do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, "'do not defraud, honor your father and mother.' "'And he answered and said to him, "'Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth.' "'Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him, "'and said to him, one thing you lack, "'go your way, sell whatever you have, "'and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, "'and come, take up the cross, and follow me.' "'But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, "'for he had great possessions.' You know, though the, the rich young ruler didn't specifically ask here, what must I do to be saved? That, his question was that same question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus referred him to the Ten Commandments. You know, this is before Jesus died, and the terms of admission were different. They were to obey the law of Moses. Moses. Colossians 2, verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he, speaking of Jesus, had taken it out of the way and having nailed it to the cross. That hasn't happened yet. And so he told, uh, he was pointing this rich young ruler to the law of Moses. And then he said, one thing you lack. You know, this rich young ruler said, all these things that you've told me, I've done. And Jesus said, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. This young man I don't believe was necessarily being told that he must sell all he has to, give to, to, to receive eternal life. What Jesus was teaching him was that he was in captivity to his possessions, that those possessions were a God in his life. And he can only have but one God in his life according to the Ten Commandments. By freeing himself of captivity to his possessions, he could receive freedom from captivity of his sins. Yeah, that's not unlike us today. You know, many of us have sacrificed for the cause of Christ. Now, we don't sacrifice today many times like they sacrificed back then. They gave up their lives, literally. They had to, to run you know, they had, they had, we'll read about Saul of Tarsus here in a little bit. But we've likely sacrificed things. And maybe it's even simple things like social outings with people. We would have, you know, eh, yeah, it kind of been cool, but I don't want to be a part of that crowd. I don't want to be a part of that environment. Maybe people have picked on us for uh, uh, different convictions that we have or things like that. You know, we will likely sacrifice something being, uh, when we're Christians. Maybe it's sacrificing habits or pleasures, or maybe it's sacrificing through persecution of our newfound convictions when we come to Christ. You know, John the Baptist lost his head because he stood up for the truth. Joseph went to prison when he refused to give in to temptation with Potiphar's wife. We can expect to have some difficulty in the Christian walk. That's part of our cross bearing. That's part of what we have to do. Jesus said to be willing to deny yourself and your sinful desires. Jesus said to be willing to take up your cross and follow me. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. If we're going to stand up for Christ, if we're going to follow Christ, it's going to cost us something. And it could cost us today. It could cost us tomorrow. It could cost us next year. But we have to make sacrifices if we want to be Jesus' disciple. We don't seek salvation necessarily because it's an easy life in Christ. It's not always easy to be a Christian. It's going to cost you. Being a Christian can be difficult in a world so far removed from the the obedience of God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 16, to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Sometimes it's not always the easiest thing to do to show that light in the world we live in. But I want people to see that light in me. And I want people from by seeing that light to be drawn to Christ as well. By letting my light shine, perhaps someone else will ask the question, what must I do? How do I get that light in my life as well? I want us to really think about what comes next for this young man. The Bible says, but he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The Bible doesn't clearly say whether or not he was saved. We assume that he went away sorrowfully like he left the Lord. You know, he decided he turned away from the Lord and went back to his possessions. That's the assumption. He could have been sad because he recognized the great sacrifice. You know, the Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't necessarily say But based on what the scripture points out here, it seems to be that this man was sincere in asking the question, what must I do to be saved? But he didn't really want the answer. He wasn't ready to pay the price. He only intended to obey as long as it didn't cost him anything. Ronnie Wade once taught a lesson titled, what does your religion cost you? And he said, the religion that you want to be a part of is the religion that costs you everything. That's what this young man seemed to not realize. Many are like this today. Many are intending to obey Christ as long as it doesn't cost them anything. As long as they don't have to give up things that they want or give up going to places that they want to go or give up uh, people they enjoy hanging around or habits that they have, as long as I don't have to do that, what, what, what do I have to do to be saved? How is it with us? What are we willing to sacrifice in exchange for the gospel? There are millions today who say they want to be saved, but their actions demonstrate that they don't because they're not willing to pay the price. So three times in the book of Acts, we read the question, what must I do to be saved? I want to look at those for the remainder of our lesson today. Now, it's very important that we realize and recognize some things. First of all, the book of Acts records the beginning of the church. And that's one reason I asked Brother Tim to to read that for us today is because that's kind of the theme around these lessons is we want to be that church, not these other religious groups that we see today. This was the beginning of the church. We today are like are held to the same standards and requirements that they were then. And if we read of something in the book of Acts, if it's a command for them, it's likely a command for us today as well. In the book of Acts, we find this question three times. But strangely, we kind of find three different answers. That could be confusing to some people. That doesn't seem very helpful, does it? Why would the scriptures be confusing like that? Well, what we'll actually find by looking at it today is it's actually a striking example of the harmony of the scriptures. So we read earlier Acts chapter two and the day of Pentecost. The, you know, we, we read of the, the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles and, and they had this, the gift of tongues and they were able to, to preach to all these different people in their tongues, which also was one way that they demonstrated their authority by which that they were speaking. We see here Jews of every nation, and, and and when they started, when the apostles started speaking in these other languages, the Jews were blown away. Some of them thought that they were drunk. They, and, and and Peter comes back and says, "Why do you think they're drunk? It's just the third hour of the day. Today may not be quite so um, out of place, unfortunately, but but back then, it's obvious it was because Peter was like." Why would you even accuse him of that? It's the third hour of the day. And then obviously, as the Scripture says, some of them were astonished and they were amazed. But after this, Peter began preaching the very first gospel sermon that we read of in the church. Now, Peter was a very passionate man. Uh, he was the one that cut off Malchus's ear. He was zealous. He was ready to go to, to war for the Lord. Well, his mentality of what it meant to defend the kingdom changed and he is going to war here on the day of Pentecost. But he recognizes that it's a spiritual warfare that he's fighting here. And so Peter starts preaching to them very passionately. And in his sermon, his sermon hit the heart of these Jews here. Acts 2 verse 37 says, now when they heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What must we do to be saved? Now, before we read Peter's reply, remember what Jesus tells Peter in Matthew 16, verse 19. He says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus here was giving Peter the authority, which he can because he has authority. He was giving Peter the authority to preach the terms of admission into that kingdom. And so whenever these men ask Peter, what must we do to be saved? We know that whatever Peter replies with, he has the authority to command that, to require that. And so what's Peter's answer? He says, repent and let everyone of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So why were these folks not told We know, we you know belief in Christ? That's, what, that's almost the unanimous teaching across all denominations and religious groups is belief in Christ. Why were they not taught to believe here? Well, it was obvious they did. In fact, they believed what Peter was preaching so much they believed it. they were convicted by it, that they wanted to know what do we have to do to have this, to, to fix the problem that we've caused in their minds. And so Peter told them to repent be baptized for the remission of their sins. Now, according to Peter, baptism is just as essential as repentance. They are bound together by that conjunction and They point to the same thing, forgiveness of sins. If repentance is for the remission of sins, so is baptism. Salvation requires more than just faith and a change of heart. That's what we read of in the scriptures. I challenge you to show me one example, just one example of a conversion taking place under the new covenant that we live under today where all they were told to do was just believe and that's all they did. It's not there. Not one time under this dispensation was someone forgiven of their sins by simply believing. It doesn't happen. It's not what was taught in Scripture. The Jews on the day of Pentecost had believed and they had a change of heart, but they weren't saved yet. They had more to do as Peter told them. He said, repent and be baptized. And so Acts chapter 2 says that. He says that they were baptized and the Lord added to the church daily, those who were being saved. Now, the next time we see someone ask, what must I do to be saved is Saul of Tarsus. The first time we read of this man is in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, and we'll read through Acts 8, verse 1. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Later, the, the, the apostle Paul is referring to himself in this, uh, later when he's writing to the church at Philippi, he's referring to himself as Saul in this place, and he says, I was zealous... In persecuting the church in Philippians 3, verse 6. Saul was so bitter towards Christians. Paul says in Acts 26, verses 10 and 11, Thus I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blasphemy. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. We know what it says when it talks about Saul and Stephen. And he says, now Saul was consenting to his death. That means Saul killed him. Saul was the one who approved or called for the death of Stephen here. You know, many times you watch, I like watching a lot of these different crime shows and the whodunits and who killed who and, you know, love money or drugs, you know, those kinds of, you know, who did it and why did they do it and all those kinds of things. You know, many times when these people would hire a hitman or somebody to do their dirty work for them, they got charged with murder too because they were the one who called for it. They were the one who initiated it or wanted it done. That was solved here. Saul was the one consenting for the death of these Christians. So Saul was this huge persecuting figure in the church. And people knew it. That was one of the issues he had uh, when he first converted. His reputation preceded him. If Saul were here today, he'd kill you and be happy about it. He wouldn't think twice about it. And I know that because he told Agrippa that his conscience was clear before God in Acts 23, verse 1 and Acts 26, verse 9. He'd kill you and think he was doing the right thing. You know, we can learn a valuable lesson in that too. That teaches us that our conscience is not what dictates where we go to church or how we worship the Lord. Because Saul thought he was doing what was right. And Jesus later says in his conversion accounts that he'd been kicking against the pricks. That's people today. Like I said before, that's people who think that they are members of the right church, people that think they are worshiping right, think that they are saved right, but it doesn't matter, because our conscience is not what makes those dictations. We we read the scriptures. We search the scriptures and we find out what Jesus commands us, what the apostles commands us. And that's what's binding. And it doesn't matter whether our mind feels good about it or not. Our mind can be, uh, 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 our conscience can be seared. So Saul was on the road to Damascus to kill and persecute more Christians. And he was struck blind by Jesus himself. Now, Jesus did not visit Saul To pardon him of his sins, as many denominations today teach. Jesus said in Acts 26, verse 16, But rise and stand on your feet, listen, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. This event, I'll just say it. Saul was not saved on the road to Damascus. That is not what the Bible teaches. This event that happened did not save Saul. And I know that because he asked Jesus in Acts 9, verse 6, uh, what must I do? And Jesus says, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Saul lacked something. Now, he, he was on the right track. His mind, his heart was where it needed to be, but there was still something that he had to do. It wasn't a lack of faith because, well, I mean, he believed. If that happened to you today, I guarantee you believe about anybody would believe. So it wasn't a lack of faith. It wasn't a lack of repentance because Acts chapter nine verses nine through eleven teaches that he was so torn that he fasted, he didn't eat or drink for three days. That's a, certainly a demonstration of repentance. It wasn't a lack of a change of heart that he was lacking because he desired to obey Jesus. Yes, Jesus, what do I have to do? Saul was not saved. On the road to Damascus because his sins hadn't been washed away yet. So Jesus told Saul to go into the city and find out what he needed to do. Well, what was it? Well, in Acts chapter 22, verses 10 through 16, the Bible says So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told uh, things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up and said to him, uh, looked up at him. Then he said, the God of of our fathers has chosen you that you should know of his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be witnesses, uh, you will be his witness to all men of what you had seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. So it wasn't the belief or the repentance that saved Saul. He says, arise and be baptized and that conjunction again, it simultaneously wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So this is the second time that we've read the question, what must I do? And the answers were not have faith in Christ. The answers were not just say this prayer. The answer was not just believe that the Lord Jesus has died for your sins. Those are the results of satanic deception. That's teachings of Satan because those words do not save. Only obedience to Jesus and the apostles save. The last example where we see someone ask, what must I do is found in Acts 16, verse 25 through 30. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Then he called for a light and ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now the Philippian jailer up to this point wasn't a believer. He wasn't a Christian. We have no record. We we don't see anything that would would imply that he had ever even heard the gospel preached to him as far as that goes. The men told him in Acts 16, verse 31, uh, so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Now earlier I said find one example of somebody being converted by just belief. He wasn't converted by just belief. If we look at the scriptures, we realize this wasn't the end. And there's some different theories. You know, when we look at the consistency or the harmony of the scriptures, we can look at every conversion account and see how these men met all these different things. Well, why is it that they told them to believe and you will be saved? Could be a little bit confusing. One, one uh, 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 commentary that I read said that it could be that Luke didn't record the whole encounter. That's one. But another view is that they told them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Meaning that if you believe what we're teaching you, you will do the other things required. Because you, like the day, Jews on the day of Pentecost, will be convicted. And you will recognize the necessity for salvation and you will do what else Jesus has commanded. The Bible says in Acts 16, verse 32, then they spoke of the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Well, why was that necessary? Well, it was so he could believe. Romans 10, verse 17 teaches that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But we see that the jailer then repented of his sins and was baptized for the remission of his sins. Not only him, his whole household. Men today are saved in the same way that these men were saved. Because we know God's not a respecter of persons, according to Acts 10, verse 34. Like I said uh, when we started, if it was binding to them, it's likely binding to us today as well. So we see three different answers to the question, what must I do to be saved? But finding the harmony in, in those three examples is not very difficult. The jailer was an unbeliever. And he was told to believe that was what he was lacking was believe and he was baptized for the remission of his sins. The people on Pentecost, they did believe and they were told to repent and be baptized. Those were the things that they were lacking in that moment. Saul was a believing penitent man, as we talked about, and he was told to be baptized to have his sins washed away. These three men were given different answers because they were at different places on that road to salvation. But all of them, including every other conversion example in the church that we read of in scriptures, met the same criteria. They all did the same exact thing and they all recognized that they weren't saved when they believed. They all recognized that they weren't saved by faith because they all were baptized for the remission of their sins. Here's an easy way to make sense of that. If I asked you, or if I asked somebody here, how many miles is it between here and Nashville, Tennessee? Well, About 700. If you looked it up, it'd be 600 something, close to 700. But then if I got to St. Louis and I said, how many miles is it to Tennessee? Well, they'd say probably about 400. And if I got to you know Paducah, Kentucky, or whatever, it's, well, about two hundred miles. I got three different answers, but the destination was the same, and the only thing that changed was where I was at in my travels. That's salvation, and that's what we see in these examples. The same is true with the question, "What must I do to be saved?" The Philippian jailer hadn't started down the road yet, and he was told to believe. And he was taught repentance and was baptized. The believers were not told to believe, but they were told to repent and be baptized. Saul was repentant, and Saul did believe, and he was told to be baptized. These three men traveled the same road. They were all converted the same way, and we must be converted like that today as well. This series, all about how to identify the church that Jesus built, it's important that we find the church that Jesus built. And with more dollar bills being thrown into the mix, it becomes harder and harder. Most people believe that they're right. Most people believe that the way that they live, the way that they were raised, the way that they think is the right way. And they're convicted of it. They're convicted that it's the right way because it's what, what soothes the conscience, it's what's you know comfortable. But we have to identify the church because that's the only church going to heaven. Jesus taught a lot about unity. Jesus taught in John 17, verses 20 through 23, prayed. For unity, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be as one. Father, as you and I are, uh, as 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 you, Father, and me, and I and you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them. As you have loved me, unity <clears throat> among followers of Jesus Christ is a priority for Jesus Christ. That's what he wanted. That's what he prayed for, and so it must be a priority for us as well. But we have to ask ourselves the question, and this is this is constantly. We have to constantly ask ourselves the question, uh, and especially asking those in the world the question: Are we unified? when there are so many differing views and all of those differing views claim to be the view of Christ or the teachings of Christ and the apostles? No, the answer is no. The church of Christ may be the name on our sign out there. But the church of Christ, we, we call ourselves the church of Christ. This gathering of Christians right now is the local body of believers that make up the Cedar Terrace Church of Christ. And I believe that the church of Christ is the only church going to heaven. I believe the scriptures teach that. But it's not because of the name on the door. That's a sign. That's that's certainly important. But it's about do we follow the teachings of Christ? Do we recognize the authority of Christ? That's what matters. Jesus Christ died and claimed the church as his own. Colossians 1 verse 18, and he is the head of the body. The church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. If you're not a member of that one singular church, not the Cedar Terrace Church of Christ, but the body of believers that make up the church. If you're not a member of that one church, you're not a member of the church that's going to heaven. And that's a hard truth to hear but it's a necessary one for us to ask ourselves to recognize the importance of it. Do you want to be a member of that church? We can help you do that today. We can help you become a member of the one church that Jesus died for. We can help you become a member of the bride of Christ, the church that one day the Lord will present to God to His glory and His righteousness. We can make that choice today. We've identified that the Lord's church can be found by its name, its birthplace, founder, foundation, builder, and creed. But the church can also be identified by the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? If you find yourself in the category of needing that salvation, or if you need prayers of the church for forgiveness, maybe you are a Christian and you've fallen away or need encouragement, we ask that you would come forward while we stand and sing.